Welcome to the Andy Griffin Show, the number one talk show in St. George, starring Andy Griffin. That's me. Thank you for tuning into the program this morning. I'm Andy, and uh, I'm so glad you're along. It's a beautiful day here in Utah's Dixie. We're looking at uh, 81 for a high today. A little bit windy, so put a little extra hairspray on if you need to. Uh, but other than that, uh, I think I think we're in good shape for a gorgeous Tuesday. The Washington County Fair Parade is tonight. We'll be in that parade. I'll be throwing stuff left-handed because I'm going to be driving, so I'll be sitting in the driver's side door on the Mitsubishi, the KDXU Mitsubishi, but uh, it's a pretty good chance I'll miss you when I throw candy to you or something, but anyway, I'll be there. Say hi, wave at us, and uh, look forward to seeing you all tonight at the Washington County Fair over in Washington City on Telegraph. Uh, it is, uh, again, Tuesday, the 13th day of April. One of the things I like to do on this program is bring in people that are smarter than me because I'm not an expert on very many things. Uh, it may be sports and music. That's about it. Uh, but uh, one, uh, So I like to bring people in who know a lot about certain topics. Today I've got Paul McLean on the line. Paul, how are you today? Great, Andy. It's great to be with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Now, Paul is a professor of medicine and pathology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine with 25 years of experience studying obesity and metabolic complications. And uh, what that's kind of a fancy way of saying that Paul really knows his way around the uh, the fat cycle, I guess, Paul. <laughs> is that pretty close? I know. Is that maybe we're not supposed to use that word? I don't know. Fat. Yeah, you know, in a nutshell, that that pretty much sums it up, Andy. <laughs> What, uh, I, first of all, you sent me uh, a little PDF. I say a little, and I'm being uh, facetious. It's a very large PDF. Uh, I, I, I think I lost count of 40 something pages or something of all the things uh, that the studies you've done, papers you've written, uh, appearances you've made, specialties, uh, and, and boards and things that you're a member of. And it's, it, it strikes me to, to, to know uh, that you are one very busy, busy guy when it comes to this uh, territory. Tell us a little bit about what it is you do on a daily basis. Well, so Andy, here at the University of Colorado, I direct the Nutrition Obesity Research Center, and this is a a group of faculty members at at the University of Colorado that are interested in nutrition obesity research. We have about 180 faculty who do research at uh, you know, from the from the molecule um, all the way up to community outreach studies. Uh, and and so we have um, a, a really large research base, and what my job is is supporting them, and with our core facilities and supporting the trainees in at the University of Colorado, and helping them build their careers and become successful scientists down the road. So th- that's generally what I do here at the uh, at the University of Colorado. So, and it does keep me busy. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's probably safe to say that America has an obesity problem and it is, uh, you know, fat and losing weight. These are things that are on America's mind constantly. I mean, if you watch television for, for 10 minutes, you're going to see two or three, you know, fat, weight loss commercials, and a place that does surgeries on weight loss, a pill you can take and things like that. I mean, this is kind of sort of part of our psyche. Yeah, you know, Andy, this is, uh, 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 no pun intended, it's a huge problem. People with excess weight now outnumber um, those who are normal weight. Um, Over two-thirds of Americans right now 
um, are either uh, have overweight or are classified with obesity. And, and this leads to a number of medical problems and a, uh, a huge uh, cost to our healthcare system, but it also affects people's quality of life. Right. Um, and, and what they can do, you know, just throughout the, their normal living. And so it, it is a huge uh, uh, problem that is being addressed by the National Institutes of Health these days. Would you say your very department exists because of the, the huge problem? I mean, you'd be out of work, right, if everybody was, was thin? Yeah, you know, if, if, if everybody was normal weight, I, w- I would say that I would have much less to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, I, the problem is, has been growing over the past 20 or 30 years um, and doesn't seem to be going away. And so it, it has become a focus uh, for, for leaders in Washington as well as for the scientific community around the world. It's not just the United States. It's, it's countries around the world that are experiencing this as well. Now, the, I think the popular belief is that, okay, our ancestors, if we go back to the 1800s, early 1900s, they had to physically work to, to live, and that physical work kept them from having obesity problems. Now that our lifestyle, that our, our lives, our, our, our country, even our world, has turned into more of a, you know, going to work means sitting in front of a computer for eight hours or whatever. Uh, we, the popular belief is that's why we're having obesity problems, and the only way to combat that is to simulate or to kind of mimic what our ancestors did and, and get some kind of work in. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the the problem of obesity has only risen within the past um, uh, 30 or 40 years. Uh, and as you mentioned, the, the, the change in our lifestyle of, of how we work, uh, the availability of foods, the availability of tasty foods uh, and energy-dense yeah. foods um, has really created a situation where um, life is different for us now. And, and uh, you know, we're not getting nearly as much or we don't have to. Uh, we're not getting as much physical activity or we don't have to phys- uh, be physically active uh, to earn a living and, and make it part of our lives. And so all of, all of that contributes uh, to the rise in obesity that we see today. And, and you know, if we could go back there and, and, and get people moving um, and eating better, uh, you know, we would be a long way toward um, uh, a solution. But, you know, that's hard for us. It, it's, it's hard when we're surrounded by really good food yeah. uh, and, and – uh, the, without the need to be physically active to to earn a living and, and to survive. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned food, and, and I I think about this sometimes when I'm at the so you go down the snack di- snack aisle of a store, and you've got you know hundreds obviously of choices of, of different snack foods, and some of them are almost just straight you know high fructose corn syrup or or whatever sugar. And, and I, I always wonder, is there any kind of regulation in the food industry on, on foods that are so darn fattening, so darn bad for you, that they almost should have a label? Is, is there any regulation along those lines that you're aware of? Yeah, you know, there are. Uh, the, the, the labels are highly regulated. The federal government requires food companies to, to, to label the, the contents of foods and, you know, with particular types of of uh, constituents, um, you know, I, I think 
you know, your average consumer doesn't necessarily get into the label. Nope. Uh, they just see it on the shelf and, and, and pick it up and, and go. So I think we as consumers need to be more educated on the types of, of foods we eat, what's good for us, what's not so good for us, and, and focus on those foods that, that could be, uh, you know, beneficial uh, for our health and weight. You know, it's funny, a, a typical trip to the store for a lot of people is uh, they'll pick up two kinds of pasta and one has a few more, few less calories, so they'll grab that one, and then two minutes later they're putting a box of Hostess uh, cupcakes in their cart. <laughs> you know? Well, I saved three calories on my pastas, so, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I can't say that I'm not one of those people that you're talking about. You know, when you walk by and you see those Hostess cupcakes, they, they look really good. You know, it's just our job. Um, you know, our job, it's, it, it, it's something that we, we have to put into our psyche, uh, of thinking about what's good for us long term. you know, with regards to health and weight to, to show some restraint when we're walking past those foods. Uh, and, and, and if we do partake, partake in moderation. There you go. That's a word that Dr. Blodgett likes to use on this show all the time is, you know, you can have something like that. Just don't have a lot of something like that. And a little moderation goes a long way. Let's talk about some of the trends in, in weight loss in the world. I mean, we, we just outlined how we do have an obesity problem, uh, not only in America, but in the world, uh, and, of course, we're all looking for the magic pill or the magic bowl or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, are there some trends in the weight loss industry that are, are, have, have some credence to them? You know, um, it, it, it's, really, it, it's a really difficult topic because there's so many options out there, Andy, as you know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a ton of different diets, and, and we actually do have – um, uh, different pharmaceuticals that are now available. And, of course, you're, when you go to the doctor, they tell you to exercise a lot and jump into this exercise program or that exercise program. And even today, we have, um, you know, surgery, bariatric surgery and, and mm-hmm. bariatric devices that can help us lose weight. You know, the biggest problem that we've identified is is not that these diets do or don't work. It's it's that people don't stay on them for very long. Uh-huh. And, and so they go on a diet, and then they lose some weight. Most of them work if you stay on the diet uh, or the, the weight loss program. But then, you know, three to six months in, you know, they go off of their diet, uh, and they've lost the weight. They think that, that they're starting with a clean slate. And that's, yeah. that's just not the case. When you lose weight, particularly when you're restricting calories, um, your body changes, your muscles change, your adipose changes, and uh, your, your gut changes and your brain changes. And your bo- so you have this biological change that increases your appetite and lowers your, your metabolism. Uh-oh. And that causes weight regain. So the biggest problem right now is how do we keep people, uh, how do we help people keep the weight off in the long term? Because they, they can lose weight pretty easily, but the weight comes back. Weight regain is the biggest problem. Yeah, we see it over and over again. So I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, that that's something maybe we all need to learn. We can lose weight, but it's going to come back unless we do what, Doc? Unless we uh, figure out a, a diet 
an intervention that we can live with with the long term. Ah. Um, two, uh, two things. You know, the best diet for you is the one that you can stay on. And, and some people are actually are switching up. You know, they'll be on this um, uh, weight maintenance diet for a while, and when they get tired of it, they'll switch to another type of intervention just to switch things up so that they don't get bored. But the second thing, Andy, that's really important is that uh, being physically active. Uh, physical activity is not so great for weight loss, but the evidence both in uh, clinical studies and in our um, animal studies are showing that exercise helps you keep the weight off. So finding a diet that can keep, uh, that you can stay on um, without overeating and uh, being physically active are the two most important things to keeping weight off for the long term. One of the things I was reading that, that you wrote and were a part of was the, the relationship between uh, appetite and exercise and how it's actually a little bit different after you've lost some weight. Can you explain that a little, a little bit, Paul? Yeah, so, when, you know, so a lot of these studies come out, out of um, uh, what we call obesity-prone rats. I do a lot of studies with animal models that we go out of our way to try to model the human condition. And, and what we found in a lot of these studies is that in the weight-reduced state, when we, when, we, when we put these animals that are um, obese and on a weight-loss diet, we find that exercise um, counters that biological drive to overeat, and it, it, it makes weight regain a lot more expensive. It costs your body more to regain the weight than it would be, uh, you know, if you were sedentary. So it changes appetite and it increases energy expenditure above and beyond the cost of, uh, of the exercise. And those two things actually change the energy balance equation hmm. and make weight loss maintenance easier. We're now doing studies in, in, in clinical, uh, we're pursuing clinical studies to, to see if what's happening in our mice and rats uh, is actually happening in humans, but we think that that's going to be the case in, in humans as well. I have a, that's fascinating stuff. I, I have a question about, so I heard someone say it, and if I'm totally wrong, tell me, because, but I, just, I had heard that uh, when, when we're a certain weight, say, say you, uh, you're 300 pounds and uh, you lose weight, say you lose, I don't know, 80 pounds, so you're 220, uh, your body has, because it was 300, your body has set itself up to be able to uh, carry 300 pounds, and there's actually a craving or a desire or, or, or I don't know, a, a biological uh, reason to gain that weight back. And that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the other reasons that you gain weight back. Is that, is there any truth to that? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's a little bit controversial in, in the field, but you know, what you're referring to is a set point. You know, once you have achieved a level um, of adiposity, mm -hmm. that your body is kind of set to be there, and, and, it, and it's really hard to get back. And there is some truth to that, because when you do try to lose weight, particularly with caloric restriction, when you're restricting the food, your, your biology changes in a way that tries to get you to eat more and expend less to get back to where your body was. Um, and, and, and so there is some truth uh, to that. A lot of people don't like calling it a set point because it's not, it's not really set. 
and it's not really a point. For example, if you exercise, you know, it, that changes the equation, and uh, you can eat a little bit more, uh, and, and you can lower where, that, where the body um, likes to be set. So there is some truth to that, and, and that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to keep weight off in the long term. Yeah, for for sure. <laughs> if anybody anybody has lost weight and then gained it back, or lost weight and tried to keep it off, it it's uh, unbelievably challenging. Um, you work now. You, you talked about the animals that you work with. Do you work with? Uh, do you have studies with that involve humans a lot as well? Yeah, you know, and I think you know the 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 latest studies that we have go on, going on with uh, clinical weight loss um, um, it are have to do with with uh, a, a few dietary interventions that are the latest craze, uh, intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding. Uh, we have two talented sci- scientists, Vicki Catanacci um, and, and Liz Thomas here, that are, are running those clinical trials to look at how these types of interventions um, help some people lose uh, weight and keep it off in the long term. Okay, let's talk about those two again. First of all, in, intermittent fasting. I think we all know what that means. You don't eat for a certain amount of time. Uh, for me, I'm actually doing that right now. I'm a, I've got intermittent fasting. I go from 6 p.m. to noon the next day. So I have 18 hours where I don't eat. I, I can drink, but I don't eat. And then I, and then I eat uh, from noon to 6. Is it just a trick to keep me from eating as many calories, Paul? Or, or is there something more to this? Yeah, so the intervention that you're, or the program that that you're describing is what we would call time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating. That's when you limit the the window of time during the day in which you um, consume and and eat food. Um, And and many people uh, find that that is a lot easier uh, because, you know, you know what time it is, you can... You know, you know whether you you should or should not be eating, and and people can restrict their their window a lot easier than they can count calories or keep track of uh, calories on their plate. Uh, that that is uh, showing. Some early studies show that there are some metabolic benefits at maintaining lean mass and and sustaining energy expenditure with that type of weight loss, um, but. Even with that type of time-restricted feeding, you have to be careful about not overeating uh, during that window. Yeah. Um, but, but many people find that it's easier uh, for them to maintain and keep that type of intervention going because <clears throat> they don't have to focus so much on, on counting calories or the types of foods. As long as they eat a healthy diet, they can keep track of that window pr- pretty easily. Okay, so uh, obviously I got a good feeling. That time-restricted feeling. Then would intermittent fasting mean that you go longer periods without food, or, or, or how does that work? So, yeah, so intermittent fasting um, it, it is a little bit different. Maybe three or four days a week uh, it, you, you really restrict calories down to maybe 150 calories uh, that, uh, that day. And so it's almost like, an on again uh, day and then an off again day, and and you alternate those days. And some most people do it three or four days a week, uh, and then you know maybe they take a break over the weekend. 
Um, and, and you know, the, the question that, that we're asking clinically is, you know, if, if they restrict calories down to, to that low level, almost, almost a complete fast for that day, do they compensate and overeat on the days that they, that they do eat? And the studies that we have in our animal models and humans would suggest that you don't completely compensate. And so over time, uh, you're eating less calories in the long term. And if you combine that with, with limiting your calories on your on day, um, people can lose weight. And, and our clinical studies are showing that it's just as effective, if not more, um, to lose weight uh, with, that, with that type of program. Um, and people, some people find it easier to stay on that type of intervention. It sounds hard. <laughs> that sounds really yeah, hard. Yeah, it's not for everybody, right? So, uh, you know, it, it's a very personalized type of thing, whether or not you, you, could, you can stick to these types of programs. We've got a, a break coming up here in a second. I wanted to ask you another question, yeah. though. Uh, uh, you're getting into when you're when you're talking about all this stuff, Paul. You're you're talking about very complex matters that don't just involve metabolic or physical. They involve psychological factors as well. How big is psychology? Does it factor into what you do? Um, it, it's huge. The the psychology behind um, eating behaviors are, are very complicated. Um, and, and they go into uh, the motivations of what you choose to eat, how you, uh, what you choose uh, as your daily program of physical activity, and, uh, you, you know, what motivates, what drives you every day. So um, psychology is a big part uh, of the equation in how we um, uh, approach weight loss interventions. All right, so I, I've got to get a weather break in. We're gonna. Are you okay to stay a bit longer, Paul? Absolutely. Happy to be here, Andy. We'll continue to talk about the psychology of uh, of eating and and why we uh, a lot of us are having problems with our weight. Uh, we also want to talk about the relationship between obesity and cancer. Is there a relationship, and what is that relationship? Uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the COVID nineteen or twenty nine, as it were, people who gained weight during the COVID lockdowns. Uh, and some other challenges involved with uh, obesity and weight gain and weight loss with Dr. Paul McLean. Welcome back to the program, 935 on KDXU. I'm Andy. Thanks for tuning in today. We're talking with uh, Dr. Paul S. McLean. Uh, I like the S in there. I don't know. What, what does that S stand for, Paul, anyway? Yeah, it's my mother's maiden name. They gave that to, be, uh, to me to be my middle, na- middle name, and it's Scown, S-C-O-W-N. Oh, listen, I'm not familiar with that name. Okay, cool. Now we know. Now everybody knows the password to all your accounts, too. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just kidding, Paul. Uh, you know, we, we've all known people. And uh, by the way, if you want to call and talk to Paul, folks, it's 673-5890. If you'd like to text me, 435-467-5842 is my text line. Or you can email me, agriffin at cherrycreekmedia.com. Uh, we all, we've all known people who lost a bunch of weight and then seemingly gained it back and more. 
And, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with the relationship. Now, we've talked about some of the metabolic reason, reasons that happens, uh, but there are also psychological reasons. And, and I, I guess my question, Paul, is which one is stronger and does one push the other? And, uh, you know, this, this whole relationship about gaining weight back, it, it, it seems to be almost, not quite, but almost inevitable. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there's... Uh one that's stronger, um, I think that they work together uh, to promote weight regain. You know, one of the barriers to, to long-term weight loss is a very predictable decline in adherence to, to the diet program or to the lifestyle change hmm. that, that people institute for weight, you know, they implement for weight loss. Well, some people are going to say, well, you're you just know, weak, right? I mean, isn't that the, the average person can say, well, you were weak. You didn't stick to your diet. Yeah, but there is, you know, the, that, that's a, a misconception that we have because, you know, in those motivations, there are often biological underpinnings behind that, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, if you are bothered by an extremely strong appetite all day long, and that's all that you can think about, mm-hmm. uh, that affects your choices and your behaviors uh, and your motivations uh, to, uh, of what you do throughout the day. And so it, it, it becomes a, uh, very complicated. You know, when we ask psychologists, why do people go off of their diets? Why don't they just stay on that diet? You know, they, we don't know the answer to that for sure, but there's a couple of potential reasons why, that, why that's the case. And the first thing is that, you know, when people go on their diet and they lose the weight, they think that they're starting over after they've lost the weight. Right. Um, and they don't realize that they have this really um, uh, strong biological drive to regain. Um, you know, the second thing is that people um, will often return to entrenched eating habits or uh, physical inactivity habits, um, and they, they, they go back to what they knew before just because it's safe, it's easy, and it's habitual. Um, they... They don't often realize um, uh, what they're doing. People also get bored or become, they, or become, you know, they have an aversive response to whatever program they went on. For example, if they were on a high-protein diet, they get sick and tired of eating the same thing all the yeah. time. Um, and, they, you know, they have to move and change and go uh, away from that initial program that, that helped them lose weight. Uh, and and the modifications to that, that that would help them keep it off. So there's this complex psychology of behavior change that really, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not conscious, but it's affected by our biology, which is constantly telling us to regain that weight. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm hungry is a very common thing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry for pizza, you know, that, that kind of thing. So you're absolutely Yeah, you right. know, and Andy, Andy, hunger is, is one side, but the other is food reward. You know, there are certain foods that can be very rewarding mm-hmm. and tempting and attractive. And even if we're not hungry, um, you know, the, the, the rewarding aspects of food can come into play there uh, in the weight-reduced state. 
you, you might be more susceptible to that host, that box of Hostess cupcakes, um, you know, as you pass by and say, oh, you know, that, that's going to be a, a rewarding thing for me. So even food reward and the hedonic aspects of, of food, in, food intake can come into play in promoting weight regain. Yeah, there's there is no doubt. Some foods give you a, a, a euphoric almost feeling when when you eat them, you know. And and for some people, it's different for every every person. Uh, I remember I had a, a guy I used to go on road trips with. Mike McGarry used to host his show, and uh, we would get somewhere. You know, maybe we're at a tur- you know in town in Denver or Seattle or wherever for a tournament, and uh, we immediately we we get our hotel room, and then he would go for the to the snack aisle and get chips and nuts. And I would go to the other snack aisle and get, you know, cookies and a candy bar. And, and we both had the same problem, but it was a different different way that we approached the problem. We both had these, you know, these cravings, this feeling of wanting to be rewarded by uh, some kind of uh, food that, that gave us that reward. So I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, you know, Andy, and that's a big push uh, by the National Institutes of Health is to recognize the individual variability that we all experience. We're all different people, and we're subjected to different biology. We're subjected to different psychological uh, motivations. We're subjected to different environments. And what we're trying to do at the national level with the National Institutes of Health is to try to um, understand that individual variability that you just talked about um, because it it imparts an individual variability in treatment response. And so if we understand the individual variability, uh, we might be able to direct people to the right, uh, not the right intervention, but to a program that would give them the best chance of success. Mm. So we're moving towards personalized or tailored treatments for obesity these days because of that individual variability. Mm, I like it. Now, uh, how the age-old argument in psychology is nature versus nurture. How much of our behavior uh, comes from our environment and, and the way we were raised versus how much of it is, you know, we were born with and, and you know, either genetically or, or otherwise that, that is already inside of us. And any of us that have raised a number of kids knows that there are certain personalities your kid came with you had nothing to do with. It, it, was, it was there already. Uh, but how much does this factor in when it comes to uh, obesity and, and uh, trying to figure out how to make our bodies be healthy uh is genetic genetics winning is environment winning what what's stronger you know it there's not one that's stronger they are both incredibly important you as you mentioned you know the person who uh can live an unhealthy lifestyle they're physically inactive and uh they don't eat uh you know they they eat poorly but they never gain weight. Yes, right? I, I so know those people. You know those, yeah, you know those people. I hate those people. I'm not, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. I mean, um, but then you have somebody who's constantly trying to watch their diet, and, you know, they struggle with uh, weight all of their lives. So um, it's very clear that, that genetics is a big part of it. Uh, and it's not just one gene it's a multitude of genes that come together that give somebody the predisposition to gain weight um, in the environment that they're living in. And, and so, so our biology and our genetics are incredibly uh, important in setting the stage. But what our environment does is it has those insults like, 
poor eating and physical inactivity and other other things that changes uh, the, our choice that influences our choices yeah. um, and and makes it really hard for us to make the right choices. Uh, so they come together. They are, they're working together, um, and I wouldn't say one's more important than the other. They're both very important and big contributors to the problem. Now, I got a couple of texts. If people had some questions, I'm going to get to those, but i got to get one more commercial break in. So, Paul, if you'll hang sure. on a little bit longer, I'd sure love to have you. Yeah. All right. Happy to be here, Andy. Awesome. Yeah, we're talking with Paul McLean. He's a Ph.D. and a doctor at the University of Colorado uh, studying obesity. He's a, uh, you, I, I could say, and, and I'll, maybe I'll ask Paul about this in a minute, uh, uh, is he the foremost expert on obesity and weight loss and, and regaining in the country? He, he might just be the guy. Uh, right now, though, I'm going to talk about uh, great sponsor, Joe Shoney. Joe Shoney is a lone consultant serving Southern Utah for more than two and a half decades. His specialty is customer service. In other words, he wants to take care of you. Uh, we've all had those loans where we get the loan, you go in the first time filling all the paperwork, and then you don't hear from the guy again until, you know, four o'clock on a Friday. He says, hey, you've got to be in here in eight minutes to sign these papers or you're going to lose the loan or you're going to lose the house. Uh, that's not the way Joe Shoney operates. Instead, he keeps you apprised of what's going on all the way along the way. Uh, very, very big on communication, emails, texts, phone calls, uh, whatever you need so that you're aware of exactly what's happening with your loan all along the way. His name is Joe Shoney. Average a phenomenal 4.96 out of 5 stars online. Give him a call today at 435-590-6300. It's Joe Shoney, 435-590-6300. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. We're talking uh, with Dr. Paul McLean. He's a PhD specialist on obesity from the University of Colorado, based in uh, Denver, right? That's correct. Uh, we're actually in Aurora, which is right outside of Denver. Okay, suburbs. Yeah, that's close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. yeah, yeah, we're right outside. Had a couple of uh, people, uh, a couple of texts. And by the way, if you'd like to call into the show, 435-673-5890, or if you would like to uh, text me, it's 435-467-5842. We'd love to hear from you this morning. Uh, a couple of uh, texts. One of them was, uh, let's see, I got to get to the meat of it. Uh, oh, uh, what's the relationship between obesity and cancer? And uh, the, the references story, I'm going to summarize it instead of reading the whole thing. Uh, they had a loved one who got colon cancer, and uh, they, there were whisperings that was because his wife was such a good cook. Is there, is there any relationship between obesity and cancer? Yes. Uh, obesity um, increases the risk for a number of different types of cancer, colon included, uh, breast cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer. So the, there, there's a, a large um, list of the types of cancer that are influenced by excess weight. Wow. Um, my particular interest is in breast cancer. It doubles the risk for breast cancer. Uh, and, it in, and if you have diabetes, the, the risk for cancer increases by five to tenfold. Wow. Um, so it increases the risk of, of metastases and and uh, is, gives poorer prognosis uh, in, in the outcome, so it increases overall mortality. And so there's this relationship there that, that we're studying both in our animal models and in our clinical studies to understand uh, this relationship. 
You know, the, the big news today, this morning here in the newsroom, was that the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine had been put on hold for now because six women in uh, in America out of seven million doses uh, got blood clots. Uh, to me, it just, you know, it's another case of, uh, you know, kind of knee-jerk overreaction that they would pause a life-saving vaccine because six people got blood clots from it. But, uh, you know, when, when, I, when I transfer that back to what you were just saying, obesity accelerates or increases the odds of you getting a lot of these cancers, in particular breast cancer. It seems like there ought to be a bigger deal made of this, uh, Paul. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think at the National Institutes of Health, it's certainly recognized as as an important relationship to understand. Um, and so, you know, we do have a number of studies that are funding not only our models to understand the relationship, but, but to understand how do we... Uh, how do we intervene? Um, it's so hard to uh, have people lose weight, but how do we sever that link um, uh, beyond, you know, if we could do it outside of, of having people lose weight, could we sever the link um, uh, so that we could improve uh, cancer outcomes or reduce the incidence of it as well? Yeah, I, I just I feel like, you know, it's kind of like, uh, well, we should we stop driving cars because uh, people die in car crashes? And, you know, it, I mean, we all have to live, but certainly obesity is one of those factors that I, I just feel like there ought to be more talked about when it comes. If if I'm, you know, two, two or three times more likely to get a certain kind of cancer because I'm overweight, that that ought to be something that somebody should be screaming from the rooftops, it seems like to me. So and I know there's only so much you can do, Paul. Yeah, you know what the can the National Cancer Institute has recognized um, this relationship, and so um, uh, inter- they have uh, invested uh, resources to um, how do we how do we reduce the incidence through our nutrition, through weight loss, and through exercise programs um, to reduce the incidence and, and overall outcomes um, uh, with with a number of different types of cancer, not just breast. So I, I think that there's a lot of research that's going on to to really try to understand that relationship and to address it um, at the clinical level. I got another text here. Uh, I assume pretty yeah. young young person, but they said this. They said, my mom and dad are both big people. Uh, I'm starting to become a big person myself. Do I have a chance? Pretty good text. Yeah. I don't want to be all pessimistic here. I think, you know, um, the earlier in life that you uh, recognize, uh, you know, that you might uh, struggle with your weight, um, but I think you have to take it on as as really a lifestyle change. You know, you can't, it, it's not just this transient thing that you can uh, do and solve and then go on with your life. It's about a lifestyle change, changing the way that you eat, uh, changing the the behaviors that you choose, you know, to be involved with, uh, your choices. Uh, the earlier that you start in life, the better off you will uh, be 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Uh, picking up and becoming physically active in some way, shape, or form and choosing the right uh, foods to eat and, and keeping track of how much you eat, uh, you, you know, monitoring and engaging that. Starting early is the best thing. Prevention uh, is is so much easier. Well, it, it's it's still hard, but it, it, yeah. it's easier than than trying to successfully keep weight off um, after you've gained it. 
That, and prevention with everything, not just weight gain, but, but you know, it seems like the, I remember going back to my college days and, you know, the, the lessons learned in college were but prevention is 100 times easier and 100 times cheaper than treatment. Maybe not easier, but, but 100 times cheaper than treating, you know, problems. And, and uh, you look at obesity in particular, if, if we can keep ourselves from becoming obese, uh, I, the problems you get when you're obese, and you know this more than anybody, Paul, uh, with your with your programs there, is they're they're not just cancer. It's not just uh, you know not fitting into clothes, but just doing simple daily tasks becomes so much more difficult. Uh, the motivation is there, or at least it should be. But what's our problem that that we can't uh, can't capture the vision? Yeah, you, you know it it the the biggest thing. Um, is, I mean, well, there's two things, you know, that, that impact, impact on our, our overall health, because obesity comes with, you know, obesity affects every tissue and organ in the body in a pathological way. Uh, and that comes with coronary heart disease, cardiovascular disease, um, liver disease, cancers, um, uh, pulmonary disease, and it even affects the mind and brings uh, depression and anxiety. So, um, you know, there's all of these health consequences, but then just functioning throughout the day, it reduces our quality of life. Um, and, and so, it, it, you know, it, it's kind of like a one-two punch, not only your health, but your quality of life are affected. Um, and so starting early um, and, and recognizing the issues that you have uh, and taking action, uh, there are ways. In fact, you know, there we keep track of people who are successful in, in keeping their weight off. It's called the National Weight Control Registry. Hmm. It, it, you know, we follow these people who are successful in, in losing weight and keeping it off, and, and, and you know, we, we look at their characteristics and the choices that they've made, and, and we can learn from them on, on, for the rest of us, how to be successful. So there are some positives out there to to grab grab onto. I had uh, I have regularly a guest. His, his name is Dr. David Blodgett. He's the health director here in in uh, Southern Utah. He's actually was a former chief resident of Johns Hopkins University. So this guy, pretty smart guy. But I asked him mm-hmm. once. I said, uh, Dr. Blodgett, given what we know about obesity. Would you recommend someone get a bariatric surgery, get get weight loss surgery? Is that something that could save their lives? And he was really torn on. I, I it took him about ten minutes to finally get, come up with an answer because he was like, "Well, on the one hand, yes, it can really help you. On the other hand, most people gain it back. On the one hand, you're you're taking an un- unnecessary risk with surgery. On the other hand, you know, if you're spiraling toward severe obesity, you're going to die anyway. Uh, he really had a he really struggled with trying to to answer that question. I'll ask you now with from a different perspective than he has uh, is a bariatric surgery is that a, a good answer for someone who struggled with weight their whole lives? You know, um sur- bariatric surgery these days has become a lot more safe than it has uh, mm-hmm. 20 uh, 20 30 years ago. There's centers of excellence that excellence that um uh, perform these surgeries and uh, they follow. Uh, there's better follow-up uh, with nutrition and physical activity um, uh, post-surgery. So, you know, I think it's an effective uh, means of weight loss. There's no doubt about it that that it does help people lose weight. Um, and 
and particularly those individuals, I, you know, I think the, the criteria, there's specific criteria uh, where the federal government has, has guidelines of who this might be good for and that, that cost-benefit ratio or that risk-benefit ratio um, fits into. And, and, and for those that, that, like you said, have a lot of different complicating factors that are going to um, reduce uh, the longevity uh, you know, obesity or, or the bariatric surgery um, is a viable option to consider uh, to, because once you lose that weight and after surgery, a lot of the pathologies um, either resolve or are diminished. So it's something to consider if you have severe obesity and, and complications. You, ha- you really need to talk to your doctor to see if you're a candidate. Um, but it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't discount it because it is one tool in our toolbox uh, that we're using uh, to treat obesity. And, of course, the little asterisk there in talking with uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. McLean about this is that there is a propensity to gain it all back afterwards, and we talked about the reasons why. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun talking with you, Dr. McLean. A fascinating topic. I think, like you said, there's now more people struggling with obesity in America than, than aren't. And it's certainly a topic that uh, that's not going to go away anytime soon. It's my pleasure to be here, Andy. It, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks for having me. By the way, real quick, uh, how's the weather out there in Denver? We have a pretty gorgeous weather here in St. George. Is everything, uh, everything good out there? Yeah, it's a beautiful day today. Uh, I think I might go out and, and go for a walk, get some physical activity. <laughs> good idea. All right. Thank you, Paul, for coming on today. It's been great to talk to you. My pleasure. This is the Annie Griffin Show. It's 9.59. I want to remind you again, the Washington County Fair Parade is tonight, 6 o'clock in Washington City. Uh, If you like parades, some people hate parades. I love parades, always loved parades. Uh, If you like parades, go on by. I think there's a pretty good lineup of uh, of folks. And, uh, in fact, uh, several of us from uh, Cherry Creek Media will be there. And uh, I'll have the KDXU mobile. I'll throw some candy at you, even despite today's show.